Sales Tuners, Episode 86, Steli Efti, Founder of Close.io. I give very basic, timeless advice. You know, when you, if you were overweight and you asked me how to lose weight, my advice is eat broccoli and work out, motherfucker. Like, I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any secrets. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Kus Diamato, who said, I tell my kids, what is the difference between a hero and a coward? What is the difference between being yellow and being brave? No difference. Only what you do. They both feel the same. They both fear dying and getting hurt. The man who is yellow refuses to face up to what he's got to face. The hero is more disciplined, and he fights those feelings off, and he does what he has to do. But they both feel the same the hero, and the coward. People who watch you judge you on what you do, not how you feel. Joining me today is self-proclaimed Silicon Valley's most prominent sales expert, Steli Efti. Steli is the founder of Close.io, a modern CRM that eliminates data entry and integrates calling and emailing within the product. He's helped more than 200 venture-backed startups build and scale their sales processes and personally closed tens of millions of dollars in deals. His no-bullshit approach to the world of sales is quite refreshing. A quick note before we start today. I know some of you have heard, but my family and I will be embarking on a year-long trip around the world July 1st this year. We'll be spending a full month in 12 different countries around the world. But why am I telling you this? Well, part of the trip for me is to compare and contrast how sales are done in different cultures. As such, I'm looking for your help to identify the top three sales reps in each country I'll be in. Our first four stops are England, the Netherlands, Ukraine, and Italy. If you know a true master of their craft in any of those countries, please, please, please shoot me an email, jim at salestuners.com. And if you'd like to see the full list of countries where we'll be or just follow along on our journey, you can check out brownsaroundtheworld.com. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 86. But now, let's get to the conversation where Steli goes deep in his study of hypnosis and how different trance states affect communication, even in sales. I think at the center of everything I do, there's two sides of the same coin. One is growth. I just love to grow personally. I love to challenge myself. I love to feel like I'm expanding. Um, and the other side of it is that I love to share everything I learned because I get an incredible amount of fulfillment from teaching other people what I know and see their growth and, and be able to be a little bit of a part uh, in that. So those are really the, the two things that drive almost everything I do today on a day-to-day basis. Well, you sharing what you learned has definitely been valuable for me. I know it's invaluable for some of my listeners as well, because you've actually been recommended nine different times uh, as a guest that I should go after on this show. And I, I listened to you on uh, the Seeking Wisdom podcast with David Cancel not too long ago. And that's what finally made me just reach out and do that. So I'm super stoked uh, for our conversation today. That's beautiful to hear. Awesome. 
one of the things, Steli, that I've uh, found out about you is that you've studied hypnosis. So I, just quickly, I want to dive into that. Like, first off, why? And then what was that process like? And, and did you enjoy it? Like, tell me about that. It was sort of by mistake in the sense that I really didn't want to study hypnosis. There was a communication course or workshop that, that I wanted to participate in, and it had kind of multiple different parts to it. A lot of it had to do with linguistics. It had um, to do with psychology. And one part of the course was a hypnosis workshop. And I really, when I saw that, when I was looking at the curriculum and I saw the hypnosis part, that was the, the big turnoff. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to learn anything about hypnosis. I have no desire making people, you know, act like chickens or something. It's important just to note that I'm not talking about uh, stage hypnosis, which is what most people think when they think about hypnosis, and was definitely what I was had in, what I had in my mind when when you know I first uh, saw that. It had nothing to do with being on stage and doing some kind of partial magic, partial like stage entertainment. This was about uh, hypnosis in a in the psychology field, and it it was basically just. A course teaching how language works and that a lot of the way that we compute language and that we communicate and interact as humans is being decoded very deeply in the subconscious mind and not so much in the conscious mind. And when you know that, you can pay attention to language much more precisely. And I think with that, have more influence over others, but also be more aware of the influence others have over you. So I really, I really surprisingly got very excited once I started understanding how hypnosis worked, what it could do. And uh, I got really deep for a few years and really studied passionately. I'm not really practicing it day in, day out over the past few years. I was definitely thinking the same thing you were there, this notion of stage hypnosis and you know the spectacle and the show of, of being put into this trance. But uh, you're saying that you have used it and, and you're, you're using the linguistic patterns and, and the psychology um, kind of in a daily basis, but not in practice. Give me some takeaways. Like, How have you seen yourself intentionally use that, maybe even in a sales conversation? I'll give you two practical examples here in, in terms of how how it has influenced my life. Um, one is that I think we, most people, uh, and I was definitely one of, of those people, I, to talk about myself, when, when I thought about kind of the states that I experienced during a normal day or during my existence, I was very much like dividing things into two stages when it came to conscious or subconscious uh, state of mind. One was I'm awake and the other one was I'm asleep, right? And this kind of very simple two buckets I would put everything in. Well, most of the day I'm awake and most of the night I'm asleep, hopefully. Once I started studying hypnosis and experimenting with different trance states and, and different states of awareness, things became a lot more granular and you started to see all the kind of between black and white, all the shades of gray in between, right? I'll give you a good example. When you, you know, we've all experienced this when we drive to a place that we drive um, frequently to, once in a while you might catch yourself arriving at your destination and kind of shaking, waking up and thinking, holy shit, how did I get here, right? And realizing it was all automatic, like you drove from your house to, let's say, work, but you don't really remember uh, every single step of the journey because you've driven so often that you were able to like drift off in your mind and have your body just perform all the actions and kind of drive somewhat subconsciously there. That's a state where you're not, you're not fully awake, 
but you're also not fully asleep. Hopefully that would work well. You're somewhere in between fully awake and asleep. And the same thing is true when watching any kind of movie that you enjoy. You, but part of enjoying a movie is to not be fully consciously aware of the here and now, right? Otherwise you would watch a movie thinking I'm feeling the couch on my button, on my, you know, I see the television set, I notice all the sounds outside, I notice, you know, my kids running around, I see the different color pixels on the screen, and I'm, inst- the entire time I'm realizing I'm watching actors perform something on a television set. Like, if you were that, le- if you had that level of consciousness watching a movie, you would never enjoy it, right? The beauty of a movie is that it puts us in a trance, Right? And it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you're fully asleep. doesn't mean that you're going to you know, make sounds like a chicken or, or bark like <laughs> a dog. It just means that you have to lose a certain level of awareness, lose the awareness of your own body, of the environment, of the television set. And hopefully, if it's a really powerful movie, completely associate with the hero or the main characters in the movie to feel the excitement, the pain, the horror, whatever it is that the the protagonists or the actors are going through. If a movie is really good, it puts you in a trance state. And that's a good thing. Otherwise, you couldn't enjoy any movie you've ever watched, right? And so studying hypnosis made me much more aware of what my state of mind is when I'm fully here, 100% conscious of everything that's happening versus when I'm a little bit of a trance state or in a really deep trance state. And when you're more aware of it, you can control it more, be more conscious, utilize that more. Another thing that I'll say to make this more practical when it comes to communication is that a lot of times we communicate in a way that's not very mindful and it can have a negative impact. I'll give you a very simple example. There's a concept in hypnosis of, or in language, in linguistics in general, of associated communication versus disassociated communication. When I communicate in an associated fashion, uh, I'll use I, me, I'll use language that directly associates me with what I'm talking about, the experiences that I'm sharing. I'll say, I had a really bad day. I felt terrible. Nobody liked me. When I talk, when I want to dis, the problem with associated language sometimes is that when I, especially when people talk about negative experiences, if they use associate language, they will have to go through the, through feeling the emotions of the experience. And because we don't like that, oftentimes when we talk about negative experience, we like to disassociate with that experience when we communicate that. So, you know, I'll talk to you, Jim, about my experience, but instead of using me and I, I will start using you. So I'll say, you know how it is when you feel really shitty and nobody likes you. I'm not speaking about you, Jim, right now. You know, as the listener, consciously, you know, I'm not talking about you. I was just telling you about my day. Why do I say you then? I say you, and we all do this, because I want to disassociate with the feeling. Now, that's totally okay, and and that's normal. The problem with it is, and we have all have experienced this, is that you as the listener, Jim, in this example, if I talk to you for 10, 20, 30 minutes, and I kind of tell you about all the terrible experiences that I'm having, but I, I use you language, I disassociate and tell you, you know how it is when you feel shitty and you're depressed and nobody likes you. The problem is that you might consciously realize that I'm not talking about you specifically, but subconsciously, you still, it still feels like, you know, 
a language that now you have to associate with. So we've all had this experience where we talk to a friend or relative and they tell us about their terrible experience. And at the end of the conversation, funny enough, we feel horrible. And we don't <laughs> even know why. And you end the conversation and you can't shake it. You're like, I'm depressed now. And I don't know how to get rid of this terrible feeling I have. Well, you heard somebody for 20 minutes telling using a language that is saying that's very suggestive, that's saying, Jim, you know when nobody likes you. You know when things are terrible. You know when you feel depressed. Well, if you hear that for 10 minutes, you'll start feeling depressed and terrible, right? You'll start focusing on, on what's wrong about life. And, and we all do this, but the problem is that we, sometimes we cause real harm because we don't know, we don't understand all these little details and intricacies of like conscious or subconscious communication or associated or disassociated communication. A recent example is a family birthday party that I was at. My family, you know, is, comes from very, it's a very worker, immigrant family, no high education. Nobody is really wealthy in my environment of upbringing. And one of my aunts that, and she's a lovely woman, they were talking about wealth and the wealthy people and all that. And, and eventually, at some point in the discussion, she turns around to, my, to a young cousin of mine. He's 14 years old. And she looks him in the eye and she puts her hand on his, on his knee and he says, ah, you know, these are problems we don't have. We are poor, normal people. And I took her hand off his knee and I turned her around and I looked at her and I said, aunt, I love you, but you are a poor, normal person. He is 14 years old and he can be whatever he wants to be, right? So I'll, I'll have these, many of these examples where I interrupt people when they communicate subconsciously in a way that might be harmful, that puts harmful ideas in other people's minds. And I'll interrupt it. I'll, I'll jump in the middle, in between the two and go, no, 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 no. That's not a good idea to put in a 14-year-old's mind because you don't know if it, if it festers then it grows into a belief system that then will make him as he grows up think, well, I'm a simple person and I'm not going to be rich and I, you know, I'm a working class uh, person because you heard that many, many times in, in many, many ways. One of the things that I want to talk about, you know, you, you truly did put me in a trance and then it was a good trance because one of the things that I heard you say was this notion of the movies. And if we were fully conscious during that time, we would feel the, the couch on our butt and we would feel, you know, see all the pixels in the screen, and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, because of the work that I do, my brain is on a lot, like way too much during the day. And so I will watch movies with my wife to totally disassociate myself and enter that trance and just be fully present to the point that I'll watch mystery movies and, and thrillers and crime movies with no idea how the movie's going to end. And it floors her because she like guesses it halfway through. And I'm like, for me, I want to suspend all of that belief and just be present so that I can let it entertain me and take my mind off of things. And so I didn't really recognize what I was doing until what you're talking about. Because again, for me, hypnosis was just that, that stage performance. And then going into this, this neuro-linguistic programming here that you're kind of talking about with that belief system. You know, I do a lot of training uh, on that with my, with my, uh, my sales teams. I have a, a, a brother-in-law who is a union uh, electrician. Nothing at all wrong with that. But he has told his son, who is 10 years old, that that's all he'll ever be in life. And I do the same thing, telling him, like, whoa, stop it. This kid doesn't know any different. He can be anything, but you are going to program him that that's all he can be and just stop it. And so it, it, I'm very cognizant with my, with my son. I've got a four-year-old to not allow him to be around people who think like that, who talk like that, who just behave like that. So uh, my goodness, we could literally spend the next hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours talking about uh, just this. I think that's fantastic. Words are powerful. 
and language is powerful. And when you're in sales, you become a, to me, sales is nothing else than result-driven communication. So, you know, living a life where you want to master the art of sales, to me also, you know, comes hand in hand with mastering and learning and becoming a student of language and words and communication. And hypnosis was just one of these many alleys I went down to learn more and grow and and widen my understanding of how words work and how language works and how it influences ourselves and others. So this was just a you know a, a fun little thing. As I said at the beginning, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then I realized, no, this is just a tool. This is just learning more about how language actually works and how it affects things. This can be useful for me to live a better life, to be more successful, but also to be more conscious in the way that I affect others and how others affect me. Well, I just recently talked to Doug Landis and we talked about how improv and taking classes and that could help you in sales. Now I'm talking to you about hypnosis. I've got to go get another education. I'm going to go find a course uh, that I can study more about this uh, hypnosis. Steli, you haven't always been the person that you are today. So let's back up real quick. Take me way back. How did you actually get involved in sales? I grew up in a factory worker family, immigrant family. Nobody ever received a high education in my family, and I was determined to keep that family tradition alive. I hated school. <laughs> I, I hated school with a passion. Um, but for whatever reason, I always had this sense, uh, the, 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 this you know, ignorance and arrogance that I thought I will do great things in life. I just don't know what that means, right? So, so eventually, that kind of uh, confidence and calling to do great things and to, to, to try to attempt to live a life that's more successful and more in many ways than the life that I was surrounded with, that ultimately led me to discover entrepreneurship. Um, and when I discovered that, it really blew my mind. It made me think, well, wait a second, there's this thing called entrepreneurship where I could have as much or as little success as I deserve. And nobody, there's, no, there's not going to be any politics involved. There's no boss that limits what I can accomplish or how fast or slow my career goes. It doesn't matter how I look like, how young or old I am, what my name is like, what my background is like. I don't need any certification. All I need to do is create value. And if I do that, I can build something huge. If I don't, I'll fail, but at least it's going to be coming all back to me. So that, that um, discovering that uh, path or that 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 opportunity of like starting a business that led me down the path of learning more about sales because when I dropped out of school I was around 18 years old when I decided finally that I had an idea and I want to start something as an entrepreneur I had to go out and get customers right and and um, when I started interact with people communicate with people trying to convince them to either join my team as employees or you know purchase my services and become clients and customers I realized really quickly, wait a second, this is something I'm actually really good at. Like people trust me, I can sell. I can sell people uh, to buy into my ideas. I can sell them to trust me with you know, their challenges and problems and they are willing to give me money in exchange for my services. And that really made me realize that sales is the main, if today I say my entrepreneurial superpower, if I had one, it's selling was the thing that I discovered being the tool I can use to create value and to make things happen in the world. And once I realized that consciously, I started just studying it, reading a lot of books, going to workshops, studying, practicing. But throughout the last 
you know, 15 plus years that I've been an entrepreneur, any, any single, every single business that I've built, doesn't matter if it's like a Silicon Valley software company or, you know, a services business somewhere in the south of Germany, any business that I was uh, involved with, I've always basically used sales as the core skill set to allow these businesses to succeed. I was once told that nothing happens in business until someone sells something to someone. And when I learned that, it made me excited about it. I think it aligns a lot with what you're saying. Through this transformation, Sally, you've had to go from relying on charisma to actually building character. When I heard you say that, I was fascinated by it. Can you go a little bit deeper? What do you, what do you mean by that? I mentioned that I discovered quickly that I was talented when it came to sales, right? And and I don't know why, but I had a fairly easy time making people trust me and having people that wanted to be associated with me, wanting to follow me, being inspired by me. It was always easy for me to charm people, you know, into into my my ideas and into joining my the, the causes that I was behind. So, so I had a lot of talents that I was able to use from a young age. The thing that I that I didn't uh, cultivate growing up was discipline, right? Character, what I would call today. And so, growing up as a young kid, I always you know leaned towards the things that I wanted to do and I liked doing and I was good doing and always leaned away from anything that was unpleasant that I didn't feel like or anything that seemed like an activity that I didn't have instant success or instant talent in when I started as an entrepreneur I always had these wild mood swings and and I was always incredibly inconsistent so you know, I would have a week of brilliance where I'd close this massive deal. I would make new partnerships happen. I would hire this incredible talent. And I would do all these great things because that week I just felt inspired and felt motivated. And so I would go out and make great things happen. But then the next week, I would wake up one morning feeling slightly depressed or down. And so, you know, when I, had, when I looked at my calendar and there was a, a meeting at 9 a.m., at 8.30, I would just reschedule that meeting, cancel it, send an email and go, well, you know, something happened. I need to push this meeting off because I just didn't feel like having a meeting that morning. And that breaking my word and and giving into that negative little emotion that made me go, I don't really feel like having a meeting this morning, that made me even feel worse. So since I canceled one meeting, I would feel terrible about it, which would then make me cancel the next meeting and the next. And Ultimately, like a little moment in the morning where I didn't feel that great would turn into a terrible day where I just broke all my promises, wasted people's time, didn't show up to meetings, canceled things, and didn't really productively work on anything. That, you know, when you end the day, a, t- a terrible day like that, you go into bed in that terrible mood, you wake up and you feel even worse than the day before, at least I did, Right. See how what I did there? I started disassociating, saying, you feel terrible <laughs> the next day. I caught myself here. So I would feel worse the next morning. So I would repeat the cycle, and a bad little moment in the morning would turn into a terrible week. And net-net, at the end of the month, when I looked at my results, rationally, I was always able to kind of rationalize it away and say, well, you know, I know that I had a terrible week or two in there, but Net, net, my month still was pretty good and much better than some of my competitors or many other people I know. But deep down inside, I could never look in the mirror and be at peace or 
feel okay about myself because I knew I didn't live up to my full potential. I knew I broke my own promises to myself and to others. I knew I wasted people's time. I knew I only worked one week this month or two weeks this month productively. And the other time I wasted time and I, and I gave in to my negative emotions. Um, and so that was kind of, that was really my lifelong struggle for like 10 years or so of being an entrepreneur. I had this ups and downs and this mood swings and I was incredibly inconsistent, but I always knew that, you know, I'll be able to charm my way out of trouble. I'm going to be able to, in the last minute, the last two days of the month of the quarter, still heroically close a big deal or fix something that I'd broken or turn something around that I messed up and still be fine. I, I, I knew I could rely on that, but I also felt terrible and ashamed of myself because I relied on that. And it took a, 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 a really you know, decade-long struggle until I had a moment of clarity that really shifted something in my brain and in my heart and empowered me to start being consistent and build character. You know, my entire life, I try to get rid of these negative emotions, these, these bad habits. I try to get rid of feeling depressed sometimes in the morning or feeling uh, like I, I didn't want to do something or feeling afraid. And I never, I was never able to, to, you know, rise to super, superhuman levels of never feeling any negative emotions. So I, I never was able to accomplish the things I wanted until I heard that quote. And then it clicked. And I realized, you know what? When I don't feel like doing something, it's totally fine. I don't have to feel like doing it. I just have to act despite that feeling. So in the morning when I would wake up and feel terrible or depressed or whatever, tired or fearful, and a little voice inside my head started telling me, Steli, you don't have to t make this call. You feel terrible. You're not going to really do a good job on the call. Just cancel it. It doesn't really matter. I learned to tell myself to, to, to do follow a mantra that I developed, which was basically just you know, closing my eyes, going deep down inside and going, um, shut the fuck up. You know, <laughs> that was it. And, 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 I, and I started telling myself, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't feel like it, do it anyways. And I go, well, but you're going to do a terrible job. And I would go, well, shut the fuck up, do it anyways. Well, but you're going to fail at this call if you feel terrible and you're unprepared. Well, then fail at the call, be unprepared, just do it anyways. Fuck it, do it anyways, became basically my life, life mantra. And I started feeling, accepting these negative emotions but not using them as an excuse, not letting them rule over my life, but just going, you know what? I'm going to be depressed and do this call. I'm going to feel terrible and go and have this meeting. I'm going to feel whatever it is, fearful and still send that email or make the call or make the meeting or take that leap of faith. I don't have to feel great to do it. I don't have to feel like it to do something. If it's on my calendar, if I said yes, if I've made a commitment, just go ahead and do it anyways. It doesn't fucking matter how you feel. And once that idea you know, came about, my life changed. And I started being able to not be a victim of my emotions anymore, but being in control of my life and being able to do things even if I didn't feel like them. And that made all the difference in my life and in the results and success I had as an entrepreneur. I'm sitting here shaking my head. Yes. As you were saying that, Steli, uh, the first thing that I wanted to do was disassociate myself with some of the things you're saying and saying, well, you know, we all do that. But I, I stopped myself. I was like, no, I do that as well. There are times I, I wake up, I look at the calendar. I'm like, you know what? I've got this meeting. It's not going to go well. I don't feel right. Let me just cancel it. And I still do it from time to time. Uh, but 
you know what? I think I'm going to take your mantra. Fuck it. Do it anyways. And just know that I'm going to go into that meeting and it's going to be bad, but I'm still going to do it and then see what comes out the other end. Because I know when I just show up, I, I was down at the Rainmaker conference in Atlanta a few weeks ago. And whenever I go to a conference, I always sit up front. I, I try to sit in the first two rows all the time because that's where you get to like meet the speakers. You get to see them. They get to interact with you. They have that FaceTime with you. And so number one is literally just show up for success. And so I think that's kind of a little bit of what, of what you're leaning into. Just, just show up. You never know what's going to happen until you get there. Yeah, beautiful. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, it takes some courage to do that. One of the things that I'm taking away from this is you're giving people right now permission to have the feelings and the emotions that they have. It's okay to have those, but then you got to get over it and just do it. So acknowledge it and then move on and make it happen and then see what happens after it. So I love that. Steli, having worked with now more than 200 different companies in this sales space, you truly are uh, an expert at what you do. I'm assuming that you've seen many patterns, both good and bad of what's working and what's not. I'm going to let you decide which way we go first, but I want to understand from you, what's the most common thing that you see the best companies doing from sale in a sales perspective? And what's the most common thing you see the bad companies doing in a sales perspective? By now, I've worked with, with thousands of companies. The 200 number that you're quoting, just to make sure that, that, that I give the correct context around that, that was the companies we, like I had a business called Elastic Sales, and we did outsourced sales for B2B startups that were venture-backed, so that had raised $10 million or more. So that's just the list of companies where I was involved in building their sales process and hiring sales teams for these companies specifically. But... You know, over the, the years, yeah, I've talked to thousands of founders and, and, and sales teams in many different companies. The number one mistake, the thing that I think uh, is the easiest to fall into as a, as a trap, and, and all the advice that I give, just as a disclaimer, I give very basic, timeless advice. You know, when you, if you were overweight and you asked me how to lose weight, my advice is eat broccoli and work out, motherfucker. Like, I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any secrets. I don't have anything convenient to tell you. Um, the basics, I think that we all know what we need to do to live healthier lives, and that's eat healthy and move our bodies. The problem that that advice is not kind of common practice is that we don't want to do it. Right? Right. It's like it's the type of advice where you're like, yes, logically, I completely agree, and I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm looking for a more convenient answer. Yes. And so, how, how do I eat donuts and lose yes. the weight? How and, and, and that's true for many problems in life. My experience is that 90% of the time when you have a problem, it's not that you don't know the answer or solution to the problem. It's that the answer and solution you know is not convenient. You don't like it. You don't want to do it. So you're, on, so you're searching for a more convenient, pleasant answer. So And that, that really relates back to uh, the biggest mistakes that sales teams and, and, and companies do when it comes to sales. They're looking for convenient answers. This can come in many ways. Uh, companies that look for shortcuts, for quote-unquote hacks, for um, you know, how can we get from point A to point B in the simplest, fastest, most convenient way without doing the work, without putting in the work, without putting in the discipline, the character, without doing some basic fundamental work to build a tall building on, right? Everybody wants to build a skyscraper without spending any time you know, laying the foundation for it. I can't help you with that. Like I don't have hacks, shortcuts. I don't have that. I, I have not seen any success that's fundamentally sound 
with sales teams that are trying to get there. So whenever you're chasing a short-term result, you're already on the path to failure, long-term failure, right? When you're looking for short-term success, you're setting yourself up for a long-term failure in my mind. Um, and this can come in many factors. Well, how can we just purchase prospect lead lists as quickly and cheaply as possible? Wrong. It's a wrong approach. How can we save the quarter when people come to me, hey, Sally, We've been having a terrible quarter. How can we save it? We have two more weeks to save the quarter. I tell them, fuck the quarter. Just fuck it, right? You need to accept that this quarter is already done. Like, you lost that. What you need to do is you need to ask yourself, why was this, was this quarter so bad? And most likely, it has to do with the work you've done in the last six months. And if you want to see better quarters in your future, let's go back and fix the fundamental issues and invest in, in getting the next quarter or the next two or three quarters right, instead of trying to set up some shortcut bullshit things to get the, this quarter's numbers up, and then again, set ourselves up for much bigger problems down the line for the next two quarters. I see this all the time. Salespeople will go and get all these bad toxic deals in the last week of the quarter to make the numbers go up, right? Get all these deals that are not really, not healthy Closing customers that not really have the money, not have the budget, are not a really perfect fit. Close customers uh, when the customer is not yet fully closed themselves. You just push everything you can through the pipeline to hit some you know, bullshit number. And then what happens in the beginning of the next quarter? Now you have to deal with all the problems of all these toxic deals that you push through the finish line. Now people are canceling. Now People are creating issues. Now people tell you, well, they didn't know that they really signed up for things. You're just setting yourself up for trouble in the future. So the biggest mistakes that I see salespeople make and sales teams make is they, they use short-term thinking. They try to find shortcuts and they try to find easy, simple, uh, not easy, but convenient solutions to, the, to their, their, their goals. If you do that, you're always going to be in trouble. You might going to hit a good quarter here and there. You might find some shortcut or some hack that will get you some good-looking results on the surface, but you'll never have sustainable success. You'll never be able to compete uh, for years or decades in your space. You're always going to be in trouble. You're always going to be you know, in stress. You're always going to have ups and downs. And, and I've met so many salespeople and sales teams in their careers where 10 years into being in sales, they're still struggling. If you're still struggling, you're doing something wrong. And more often than not, was that they always look for a convenient answer to their problems. That also points to what I think makes great, excellent sales teams and salespeople. They put in the work, man. They, they create the work. They, they do the work. They create the discipline and they, they think long term. They don't just think, how can I get a, a dollar now? They think, how can I win a customer for the rest of my life? How can I get build a customer base and a network and a reputation and with that a personal brand that will last a lifetime if you think that way if you invest that way if you act that way if you really apply a 10-year timeline for every single customer interaction you have yeah you might not see instant results you might not get like this week all the deals because you're not thinking so short term but i'm telling you time flies faster than you think and Quicker than you think, two, three, four, five years have gone by in your sales career and your sales team career. And now you're seeing consistent results and you're crushing it month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year. 
And a decade later, you're like, well, people will look at you and go, wow, why? You are so lucky. Why are you closing all these multi-million dollar deals? Why are you able to get all this press? Why are you getting all these, you have all these relationships with these CEOs and VP of sales and all these like the top executives and all these companies? Why are you, you know, so uh, uh, sought after when it comes to like being a sales leader or a sales manager or a sales account executive? And it's like, yeah, motherfucker, I can point to 10 years of work that led me to this point. And now things are easy or appear easy, but I put in the work and I thought long-term and that's the best piece of advice that I have to give. I just simply love that notion of, of putting in the work and, and what other people think is lucky. It's just that you've been doing the work the whole time. And I know that sounds very hard for a young sales rep who is just getting started in their career because they can't foresee the future like that. But I've been selling for 15 years and I can echo exactly what you're saying, Steli. I have people that call me now that I sold something to 10, 12 years ago, but because of how I handled them, because of how I led them the right way, they trust me just for my opinion, even if I have nothing to sell them today. So it, it's very, very true. Steli, I know that you know we just talked about this notion of not having hacks, not having shortcuts, but one of the things I do want to talk about, because I know you're great at it, is this concept of creating urgency. How do we, without creating a hack, how do we create urgency in today's world of unlimited choices and, and, and seemingly thousands of nice-to-have products? Yeah, I'll give you again a very inconvenient but uh, successful answer in terms of the results it's going to generate for you. The best way to become an urge to become to create a sense of urgency for your buyers and your prospects is to understand what their priorities are what is urgent and important in their life and in their career and associate your product and service and yourself as a vendor as a crucial component to accomplishing that goal or to to being able to fix that urgent problem they have you can't be an urgency you can't you can't make them act and move fast when what you are showing them and what you're telling them about your solution or product is something that is a nice to have. You must be a must have. And if you can relate your product or service back to their highest priority in their life right now and in their career and their department or company, they're going to want to move fast because selfishly purchasing your product will help them accomplish or fix this urgent problem or address this urgent opportunity that's in front of them that they're thinking about day in, day out. So it goes back to customer intimacy, truly understanding who your customer is, what their problems are, what is urgent and a priority in their life right now, and then stepping back and asking yourself, how does my product help this customer or this prospect fix that problem or accomplish that task that's so urgent, that's such a priority in their department, team, company right now? How can I help them with my service or product to accomplish their goals? Most salespeople, they never ask these questions. They jump on a call and all they do is present in a very generic fashion, here's what my product does to everybody. And then they're wondering, why is this prospect not moving faster? Why are these people all taking forever to make a decision? The reason why they take forever to make a decision is because you're not important and you didn't help them understand why you should be important in their life and how purchasing your product or service will help them accomplish their urgent needs right now. So I come up with a lot of prospects uh, sometimes that they don't want to share that information with you. Maybe you have tried to truly slow it down, understand their problems. They just want you to show them a demo. They just want you to get on with it. So how do you balance that? Honestly, I challenge the prospects. It's as simple as that. I don't have to sell to you. 
right? Uh, and when wow. people push back, no, honestly, when people push back and say, I had this um, one case where somebody told me, well, this is not, I asked a few questions and they pushed back and they said, this is not how we purchase things. We ask the questions, you give the answers. And I paused there for a second. I let that statement breathe and I told them, I understand that usually that's not how you buy. I totally get that. Let me tell you, we're not interested in typical customer-vendor relationships. We're interested at this stage of the company in true partnerships. In order for us to be able to be a real partner, not just another vendor, we need to understand your situation more intimately to be able to provide you a more custom solution. And then I went back to my question. So let me ask again, how are you guys doing XYZ internally? Now, at this point, they answered. They could very easily have pushed back again and said, no, Steli, we told you, you cannot ask any questions. In that case, I personally, I mean, you have to decide for your business. It depends on who you sell to. I understand life is all about context. But for me, I would have pushed back and told them, listen, if you cannot, if this is not going to be a, a back and forth, a flow of information, I cannot in good conscience sell to you because I don't know what to sell to you. I don't know how to sell it. So, you know, if you guys are convinced that you don't want to share any information with me, then I would take us out of the race as a vendor because I don't think we're the right partner for you. I don't have to sell to everybody. I am not interested in abusive relationships and, and you can't have abusive customer relationships. I'm not interested in customer relationships where they scream and shout or they demand things and I have to run. I'm not a slave. Like I'm interested in healthy, strong kind of eye-to-eye relationships. And if I can't establish it, I'm honestly not interested in the business. I have a feel. I want to ask you another question. I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be based on what you just said there. But I want to talk about your follow up theory. I've read a lot about this, and you know, you, you've followed up with somebody forty eight times before. So your follow up theory is just keep following up until you get a response. But how do you do that, Steli, with with uh, running the risk or without running the risk of tampering the rela- or, or destroying the relationship? Rather, I don't care. Like here's my simple philosophy here in life. When And this follow-up philosophy applies when we had some kind of a connection, right? So we had a positive meeting or call or an interaction. You showed interest in my solution. It appeared that there was a mutual fit. And then you go quiet as a prospect. Happens all the time. In my worldview, it's my responsibility to champion the relationship and follow up until you had a chance to respond to me. Yes is good. No is good. Nothing is not acceptable. Maybe it's where sales careers go to die, where all value is going to go to die. I don't accept nothing. Most salespeople, after they follow up a few times, their interpretation of the situation is that the prospect has gone silent. That means they rejected me. I have a different interpretation of life. In my mind, when the prospect goes quiet or silent, it means something else has come up in their life. I'm not their number one priority. They are busy, they're distracted, they're sick, they have some issues in their life. Things come up. And it's my responsibility to keep championing the relationship until the right moment is there for the person to respond. Now, that means, if that means that when I have 10 relationships and I follow up a lot, if it means that out of 10 relationships, four that I follow up a lot end up getting into business with me because I was so persistent and six tell me to fuck off, 
to me, that's a much better outcome than having 10 out of 10 being completely oblivious to my existence. I'd rather have four people that I've been able to do business with and create value in the world and six people that don't like me that much than having 10 out of 10 that have forgotten I existed. My job in business is not to be liked. My job is to create value, to make things happen. We had, when we had a meeting or a call, we spent 30, 60 minutes talking to each other, and then nothing happens, we made the world a worse place. I'm not going to allow that to happen. So my, my number one goal, I mean, I like to be liked just like everybody else, but that's not my number one goal. My number one goal is not to have everybody like me or never inconvenience anybody. My number one goal is to create value. And I'm telling you from experience, I've written a book about the follow-up philosophy. For anybody that's listening and wants to learn more, you can shoot me an email at stelliaclose.io and I'll send you the book for free. And we have so many case studies in there. There's millions and millions of value created and deals closed by people following my follow-up philosophy. And the reason for that is that, and, and I've done this so many times, I guarantee you, there's not been a single time where somebody was outraged and screaming at me. Many times people said, hey, thank you for the follow-up. We wanna, we're not interested anymore. Or we finally got a chance to look over this proposal. No. And I always accept that no. But even more times I've closed, I mean, multi-million dollar deals by people telling me, thank you so much for your follow-up and follow-through with this big crisis coming up, with this big distraction, yada, 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 whatever excuse they mentioned. Thank you for staying in touch. Now is the right time. Let's jump on another call and then we close the deal. Does that philosophy change at all if it's a cold outreach, if you haven't already had a, a positive reaction or interaction? Yeah, for me it does. Uh, and, I, and I realize this is not true for everybody, but if you ask me, if we had no prior relationship, I don't feel like I have the social capital to follow up with you forever. I just don't, right? So in that case, if we didn't have a prior relationship and I reach out to you, I, I usually make, make sure that I'm pretty convinced I can create a ton of value. And even then, I will follow up not more than six times, right? That's kind of all the permission I think I have from a cold perspective in order to get in touch with somebody. So when it's a cold relationship, I'll follow up six times. If it's a warm relationship, I might follow up 48 times. So it does make a difference in my eyes. Steli, I could talk to you for another two hours, but I do want to be cognizant of your time. So I'm going to take a quick break so that I can say thank you to my sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales sooners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello has been a sponsor of this show for several months now, so I wanted to call founder and CEO Frank Dale and ask him why exactly he built Costello. You and I have talked to a lot of salespeople, and I've yet to meet one that doesn't want to be great. But if we look at the tools that they have available to them, they're not built to make their job easier. We have CRM, and it's great for contact management. We have awesome tools like our friends at SalesLoft that will help you with cadences and, and reaching out to prospective customers. But the second we start talking to someone, we're stuck with Post-it notes, Google Docs, and Evernote templates. And if you're trying to run a dynamic sales call, that just doesn't cut it. And so what that leads to is forgetting to ask that question you meant to ask, not remembering that customer story when you need to tell it, and then data that maybe we need to understand what's going on in the business, not making it back to CRM. Connect with Frank and his team or request a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com and see why their platform is truly changing the way reps run sales calls. We're back and it's time for the money round. Steli, are you ready for the money round? I'm born ready, Jim. <laughs> What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Consistency. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? 
come up with an action plan that breaks down to the simplest steps possible. What is the action I can take multiple times a day, multiple times a week that has the highest chances of creating the outcomes that I want? So that might be sending a certain amount of emails a day, prospecting, doing cold calls, whatever it is, I would break it down to a simple action that's fully inside of my control. And then I would break it down to what I need to do every day, every hour. And then I would uh, set up a plan to attack that and to put in and do the work necessary to create the outcomes that I want. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? I love to win. I don't know. I'm just not, not that motivated by a fear of failure, I think, anymore as I am about the prospects of opportunity and growth. So what really gets me excited is the idea to try something or push myself outside my comfort zone and create value, um, create value for me and for others. That's what gets me excited, what motivates me. I'm moving towards things. It's I, And that was not true when I started my career, but today that's very much kind of the, the, the main mode of operation. When I started when I was 17 or 18, I, I do think that the fear of failure or the chip on my shoulder trying to prove the world that I'm not as worthless as everybody thought I was, I think that was a bigger motivator. But along the way, I lost that. And, and today, I'm much more interested in winning than I am afraid of losing. What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? There's many, many books, but I'll make a, an unusual recommendation. The one book that I would recommend almost anybody read is Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. And it's a fairly short book. It's really well written. You know, it's, it's small kind of chapters. So it's very easy to digest. And John Kabat-Zinn is the guy that brought meditation to modern medicine. He's an MIT professor. He There's no mumbo-jumbo. There's no spiritual. There's nothing attached to mindfulness in the way that he teaches it and he practiced and he studied it with like clinical research. So he has a very approachable way of teaching mindfulness, uh, but I do find mindfulness to be an incredibly powerful you know, tool in life in general, but also in sales and in business. And it's not a book that I think many sales, quote unquote, leaders are recommending. So I love to do that. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Sally's suggestion of wherever you go, there you are for free. Head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for wherever you go, there you are. Stelly, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? Get back into martial arts training. So I had an ACL tear uh, a year and a half ago. And uh, that was much more of a setback than, than I thought it would be. Um, it took a long time to get back to where I am right now. But now I have to go and relearn a lot of the basics. I have to look uh, much more stupid than I even did before. Um, getting back into martial arts training, kickboxing, MMA, Muay Thai, uh, those things are things that I'm really passionate about, but I'm really terrible at. At this point, I'm kind of a white belt at everything. Um, so having to... You know, having to go back into training and feel stupid again and, and be self-conscious that I see myself having taken all these steps back and having to kind of overcome that, um, it's a beautiful challenge uh, right now. It's kind of a mental and physical challenge. So that's, that's one of the things that I'm working on is like just getting back into training mode and not letting my ego or my self-consciousness or my insecurities hold me back or make me opt out of uh, the challenge ahead. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Pay attention to who you take advice from and who you give advice to. Maybe that's a good way to end this.
ask yourself, you can listen to people like me or, or others uh, that might be 10, 20 steps ahead or many years ahead of you. And it can be very inspiring. It can be hopefully useful and valuable. But what I would advise you to do is to look for somebody that's a year ahead of you, somebody that is where you want to be in one year today and somebody that they've gotten there recently. Um, and then turn them into your mentor, into your coach, into your friend, uh, because they most fresh, they, they know how it feels to be you. They were you just a year or two ago, and they have the most kind of up-to-date knowledge of what it took for them to get to where you want to go. So taking advice from people that are just a step ahead of you can be incredibly fruitful and powerful. And giving advice to people that are just a step behind you can be also incredibly useful and valuable. Um, everybody that's like 10, 20 steps removed from you, I think can be somebody you can learn from, somebody you can be motivated, inspired by. But when it comes to really having a coach or a mentor, I would always look for people that are just ahead of you and try learning from them. Steli wrapped up with an incredibly generous offer. If you'd like to receive all of the books he's written, Simply shoot him an email, steli at close.io. That's S-T-E-L-I at close.io. With subject line, bundle motherfucker. His words, not mine. Or if you want to hear more from Steli, you can check out his podcast called The Startup Chat that he hosts along with Heaton Shaw. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, words are powerful. Your mastery of language and results-driven communication are paramount to your success in sales. It's one thing to be good, but becoming a student of linguistics and really understanding the nuance between conscious and subconscious states can take you to an entirely different level. Think about the notion of associated and disassociated language, such as using the royal we when you really mean I. Learning different communication styles can help you not only influence others, but also yourself. Number two, act despite your feelings. Knowing yourself enough to realize there are times you don't want to do certain things is totally okay. However, you still need to do them. Look, I get it. There are absolutely moments in a day or a week that I don't want to take a meeting or do a task or even have a conversation. Give yourself that permission to have the feeling, but then figure out how to get over it and take the action you know needs to be taken. Learning how to overcome those emotions will change your life and put you in complete control of your career success. You'll also find the momentum of action, well, it just keeps rolling. Number three, your job is not to be liked. Way too many sales reps that I talk to want prospects to like them. They believe that if they say anything to challenge the person, they're only going to lose the opportunity they're working. Neither of those things are true. You must realize you do not have to sell to every prospect. Respectfully push back and tell them that while they may treat other vendors a certain way, for you to become a true partner to them, you have to better understand their current situation, and that means having a real conversation. This includes following up. If you've had a positive interaction with the prospect, it's your duty to continue to reach back out, even if that means pissing off a few people. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there. And they stay there.
What conspiracy theory do you believe is actually true?